Before beginning the Beatitudes in depth, I want to go back to how Jesus began his ministry upon coming back from the wilderness. He makes it to the Galilee, is preaching in synagogues, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is important because that's exactly what John the Baptist said when he began his ministry. And so Jesus' statement acts as a bookend, actually, for that whole sequence of events, beginning with John's arrival on the scene, preaching his baptism of repentance, making the way of the Lord to preach the same thing. And so Jesus' statement, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, is kept in mind. Then one sees that the Beatitudes... And indeed, the entire Sermon on the Mount, I guess specifically being led into with the Beatitudes, is a large, giant, cohesive illustration of what repentance is and what it looks like in order to actually lead a repentant life. So this should lead us to ask, especially in lieu of last time's conversation, who are the blessed? And what's important to note is the blessed are not, as would be believed, those who, because of external circumstances, can live a good life. The blessed are not those who either have this or that possession or this or that opportunity or who do not have this or that ailment or this or that disease or this or that hindrance or this or that glass ceiling. But rather, what the Beatitudes will show us is that the blessed are those not whose external condition but whose internal condition allows them to lead not a good life, but rather a life that is lived well. And it is this living of life well, which is walking humbly with God as he dwells with his people. So, who are the blessed? Well, there's a litany. Jesus says, blessed are these people, and these people are given a specific correlative blessing. So what I want to do is I want to look at specifically who these blessed categories are and why each category is given a certain blessing. And what I hope to show is that Jesus is employing a double irony. He's first saying that the blessed are not whom you would expect. Indeed, it's the direct opposite. But even within that, he's flipping that on its head by showing that they are not even what you would conceive of when you think of a certain category of people. He'll either give a caveat, or it will be within the blessing itself that we see that Jesus is completely reshifting, or at least attempting to reshift, his audience's thinking. He is leading them to repentance. So, I'm a nerdy guy. I love words. And that's how we're going to be going about studying this, is looking at what these Greek words say specifically to try and wrap our heads around the ideas that they're conveying and why they may have been so impactful for some of Jesus's original audience. But within that, what I really hope to do is present a clear, profound, but uncomplicated understanding of what repentance is through the Beatitudes that we can actually take to God and in all sincerity, without ephemeral emotion, only that deep conviction, but also the confidence that it works, live a repentant life instructed by Scripture. All right, so let's start off with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. Well, who are the poor in spirit? 
I really appreciate Dr. Tom Constable's commentaries. I use them all the time, especially in setting up background information for a book that I'm about to read. I find it highly invaluable. And in his commentary, or rather actually his notes, I appreciate that he labels them as notes too. In his notes on Matthew, Dr. Constable says that the poor in spirit are those who recognize their natural unworthiness to stand in God's presence and who depend utterly on him for mercy and grace. Now, this is entirely true. It's absolutely true. My only concern is, not with the statement itself, but I have my students in the back of my head, and I teach high school. I do teach at a Christian school, so my students are exposed to chapel messages and various other teachings a lot. And I've actually gotten some of them to admit to me in the past that when they hear the same thing over and over again, in the same way, it's not that they're looking for new doctrine, it's just that it becomes cold and stale, and it doesn't even penetrate. It's almost like we pull our punches when we say true things, but we use Christian language that itself isn't even quite defined. It's almost like we shoot ourselves in the foot. So, what I want to do, like I said, look at these words. So, the word for poor, tokos, which I think is fascinating, that actually comes from a similar root meaning to crouch. So, this idea of, like, balling up down towards the ground, if you can imagine that kind of a posture. It's got a number of definitions, one being destitute of wealth, influence, position, or honor. Okay, that would absolutely resonate with Jesus' audience because they would have interpreted those who had wealth, influence, position, and honor to be those who were in a better position to live a good life and therefore are those who were quite obviously blessed. But Jesus isn't going to support that. Uh, the poor can also be the helpless or the powerless to accomplish some end. Absolutely. Okay, so... The blessed are going to be those who do not have the means to improve their own situations, who do not have the means to do this or that, who do not have the physical ability to either disease or impairment or even just disposition to bring about the changes in their own lives or work for the betterment of themselves. All right, we can appreciate that, especially as Americans. We really like for people to have the opportunity to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But this is the definition that I think hits it best. And it's the broadest, actually. Tokos can be understood as lacking in anything. And this is where the phrase gets interesting. Because if tokos can mean lacking in anything, the question becomes, what are we lacking? We are lacking in spirit. Now, the Greek word for spirit here is also revelatory. It's pneuma, which has a ton of definitions. It's quite pregnant word, which is one of the reasons why I find it fascinating, because it has so many understandings to it, all of them interrelated, and many of them profound for understanding what it is to be human. So I attempted to identify what I think is the most relevant, and pneuma can be defined as a simple essence, essence being that core of what something is, that part of man possessed of the power of knowing desiring, deciding, and acting. So that part of, call it what you will, the human mind, the human soul, the human heart, that is capable of knowledge, understanding, is capable of desiring and filtering that desire with its knowledge and its conscience. 
based upon that knowledge and that desire, is capable of making a decision and therefore acting willfully upon that decision. Those who are poor in spirit recognize that their ability to bring about the desired end of a good life is deficient. They are hampering. Sorry, they're not hampering anything. I'm reading notes. Can you tell? So they recognize it. Um, they don't quite have the ability to know things accurately, to desire appropriately, to decide rightly, or even to act appropriately. And this is why man cannot survive by bread alone. Hold on. Wait, screeching brakes, non sequitur. Okay, so the poor in spirit, tying up with uh, Dr. Constable's definition that they recognize their unworthiness to stand in God's presence and depend on, depend on him utterly for mercy, all that's true. But if we bring that down here and why it's an aspect of repentance, it shifts their understanding that if we're working for a good life, we rely on our knowledge of things we rely on filtering our desires, we rely on the ability to make decisions, and we rely on the ability to act upon those decisions. But the poor in spirit recognize that their spirit, their even ability to do those four things is deficient, can be inaccurate, can lead them down wrong paths, can be fraught with not good things. So here's how it brings it back to man does not live by bread alone. Bread here can be, I think, understood, at least I'm going to use it as an analogy, of symbolizing those very things that we would use, that sustenance that we crave or think we need in order for life to be lived well. Bread makes the body healthy. A healthy body can live a good life because it is strong and sound. The problem is that bread does nothing for the soul. And the soul needs to eat. Two. So, this reminds me of when I was reading in Augustine's City of God about a year ago. I have not finished, but I made some decent headway in the first portion. And he's dissing the Roman gods for the very reason that they do nothing to provide men instruction on how to live. They can give examples to men on how not to live with their rage and their frivolity their licentiousness, their debauchery. And they can benefit man in giving him kind of quid pro quo blessings, you know, offer this sacrifice and I may spare your harvest type of a deal. But they do nothing to help men actually live virtuous lives. Men are left to figure that out on their own. But the poor in spirit recognize that they can't figure it out on their own. They need someone to help them understand, to help them not so much curb their desire, yes, in specific instances, but to understand their desires and therefore not be enslaved to or purely driven by their desires, which therefore will affect and impact their abilities to decide, which will therefore impact the actions that they willfully choose to take. So the poor in spirit are those who understand that they need the guiding governance of a living and present God to teach them how to live life well. These people are those 
who share the psalmist of Psalm 27's one desire to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty, which is the consideration of his law. And it is they who heed the prophet's admonition about what God requires of man to act justly and walk humbly and love mercy. And it is these people, the poor in spirit, who therefore will actively seek out God. And so therefore it is of course the poor in spirit who will dwell in the new kingdom of heaven. Because they're the only ones who are actually seeking God out while he may be found, who are dwelling with him as he wishes to dwell with his people. So, there's the first aspect of repentance. Recognize that it is poverty rather than acquisition that brings about blessing. But it's a certain kind of poverty. It's a poverty of spirit which means a poverty of the ability to be self-reliant. All right, hope that's helpful. Next time, we are going to talk about the mourner and the comforted.